Well, welcome back to the study of Ecclesiastes. I trust you've been following along with us and uh, are um, benefiting from the study of this unusual book and traditionally little understood book. Um, so what we did last time is we looked at um, the end of chapter 3 and all of chapter 4, which we um, titled The Teacher's Complaint, which is uh, just an easy way to say that the writer of Ecclesiastes, presumably Solomon, but we don't know for sure, uh, was bringing up objections, uh, hypothetical objections to uh, what he had said before, which is essentially that um, God did not reverse the physical part of the curse of sin, although he did reverse the spiritual part, and the physical will follow one day. And he did that so that he could leave himself a testimony to all of mankind, both people who know him already and people who don't. And uh, furthermore, that God had a right to do this and that he should not be questioned in his doing it. And um, he did it to draw men uh, to himself. So then the two objections are raised, uh, again, hypothetical ones. And uh, one of them is basically the question of fairness. Um, or another way to say it is ungodliness reigns in the world. Um, that is, people who um, should um, have favor of God, uh, the favor of God, uh, are actually um, not from the visual standpoint. They don't look like they're getting any better lives than the people who don't love God and have the favor of God. And um, wickedness just, just is rampant. And we see that um, in 3.16 through 3.22. And the answer that the writer of Ecclesiastes gives is God did not make a mistake. God is wise, God is eternal, and he did not make a mistake. And then the second objection that is raised uh, is all of chapter 4, in which the hypothetical question is uh, postulated that, well, um, God must be absent. God must be absent in, in uh, human affairs because man's treatment of, uh, of their, the fellow man is so harsh and so wicked and so evil. Basically always fighting with each other. And um, the answer that the, uh, or the reply that the um, writer of Ecclesiastes gives for that is that yes, there is corruption, uh, of course, it came from, uh, you know, a corrupt world, uh, sin in the world. Um, but God will judge, and that those who observe this characteristic of society and of, and of mankind should not overreact to it. He warns uh, the reader against overreacting to that. You see that in verses 5 and 6 of chapter 4. Uh, the fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. One handful of rest is better than two fists full of labor and striving after wind. In other words, you know, don't 
don't just check out of life. Don't just pull back and live life uh, as retractedly and as small as possible in defense of this wickedness, um, although many people do choose to do that. And um, then we saw uh, that uh, the um, next thing that the writer of Ecclesiastes will do in beginning in chapter 5 is he will launch into basically a manual for living. Uh, in some ways it it's a lot like the Beatitudes in in the book in the Gospel book of Matthew in the New Testament. Um, in, in a lot of ways it is. <clears throat> and also in some ways it's a it's a treatment on how to live, maybe more so, how to live in response to this broken world, this uh, condition uh, that we live in, this human condition that it, that plagues us all. Whether we are um, whether we are people that believe in God and know Jesus Christ, or people that don't. At this point, he's still speaking to both of them, and. Um, um, so the, the following chapters uh, give us basically 10 pieces of advice. 10 pieces of advice. And uh, let's jump in. Let's jump in and uh, see how that works. So chapter 5, and we will read, we will read verses uh, 1 through uh, 7. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Guard your steps as you go to the house of God, and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know they are doing evil. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God, for God is in heaven and you are on the earth, therefore let your words be few. For the dream comes through much effort, and the voice of a fool through many words. When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Do not let your speech cause you to sin, and do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For in many dreams and in many words there is emptiness. Rather, fear God. Now we're calling this uh, the first of his uh, ten pieces of advice. We're calling this Approach God Fearfully. And you can see why he launches into this and begins his, basically his sermon or his, or his Beatitudes with this because he's really speaking to the pushbacks that he has raised hypothetically and which he supposes, you know, uh, some will raise with, you know, you are questioning God's eternality and his wisdom and his love and really, you're saying things about God that uh, are very dangerous and very bad to say. So he begins with, guard your steps. He's saying, watch what you say. Be careful with what you say. In fact, in verses 1 and 2, as he says, guard your steps and do not be hasty, he's saying circumspection concerning God is a lot better than contending with God. A lot better than contending. You really see that in the in the in the word um, in the word uh, few 
at the very end of chapter uh, very end of chapter 5 verse 2 therefore let your words be few he's saying think more than you talk be circumspect be circumspect treat god like the sovereign he is and consider why god has ordered the bad as well as the good let him be god let god be god verse 3 for the dream comes through much effort and the voice of a fool through many words are you indignant toward god he's saying you're spouting off these words, and they're bursting to come out of you, but you really should get a hold of them. You really should get a hold of them. Verses 4 and 5. When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. Let's not focus on the vow. That's sort of, um, that has sort of um, a time lock on it. You know, we don't really think much in terms of vows today. But what he's saying is, Take your dealings with God seriously. Take your dealings with God seriously. You're not striking deals with God as if you're equals. You're not, you're, not, you're not bargaining with God. You're not promising to do something if he'll do something else, or you know, if he'll explain himself and you'll understand him better, and you know, as if you're buddies. This is not what is going on here. He's saying, be careful. Be careful. And then verses 6 and 7. Do not let your speech cause you to sin. And then in 7, in many dreams and many words there is emptiness. He's saying, you really need to be quiet and commune in your heart with God. Shut your mouth and quit saying things that don't mean anything and that are really injurious and insulting to the sovereign of the universe. That's what he's saying. So that's, uh, that's uh, his first piece of advice. His second piece of advice begins with verse 8 of chapter 5 and goes all the way through to the end of chapter 6. So we'll try to take that, um, that uh, block uh, this morning and uh, see how that works. Here we go. Verse 8. And let's read. There's a stopping point at 17, so we'll read it through 17. Verse 8 of chapter 5. If you see oppression of the poor and denial of justice and righteousness in the province, do not be shocked at the sight. For one official watches over another official, and there are higher officials over them. After all, a king who cultivates the fields is an advantage of the land. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. When good things increase, those who consume them increase. So what is the advantage to their owners except to look on? The sleep of the working man is pleasant, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. There is a grievous evil which I have seen under the sun, riches being hoarded by their owner to his hurt. When those riches were lost through a bad investment, and he had fathered a son, then there was nothing to support him. And as he had come naked from his mother's womb, so he will he return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. And this also is a grievous evil. Exactly as a man is born, thus will he die. So what is the advantage to him who toils for the wind? Verse 17, throughout his life, he also eats in darkness with great vexation, sickness, and anger. All right, this, this block or this section, we're going to title Beware of Materialism. So this is advice number two. Advice number two for all, all men, in, in light of all that has been said before, uh, this is how to respond properly to the situation that the writer of Ecclesiastes has laid out. And the reason for it, 
which is what we've been covering through verse uh, through chapter four, um, end of chapter four. He's saying uh, first approach God fearfully, and now he's saying beware of materialism. Beware of materialism. This is a very interesting thing. Now I want to begin with the end of this section, which is five through seventeen, or at least uh, the portion that we read. And I want to look at 17 for a minute. 17, throughout his life he also eats in darkness with great vexation, sickness, and anger. Man, that sounds, wow, that sounds really down, doesn't it? it sounds really depressing. Well, you have to keep it in context. So just remember, that's not what he's saying. That's really not what he's saying. What he's saying here, just to give you a little, little teaser, is he's saying if your attitude continues to be indignation toward God, and you try, as a result of that, to fulfill yourself with material goods, this is going to be the result. 17, throughout his life he also eats in darkness with great fixation, sickness, and anger. Because he's, he has so much stuff, and he, he's worked so hard for that stuff, and he's accumulated all this stuff, and he's looking out for this stuff and protecting it and getting guard dogs and safes and alarms and... He's really all caught up in keeping his stuff. That's why the eating in darkness and the great vexation, sickness and anger, he can barely sleep for all the stuff he has to guard and all the worry he has over his stuff. So let's back up. That's the you know, that's the end of that portion. But let's back up and kind of uh, take some of this apart as we go. So back to verse 8 of chapter 5. He says, You see oppression of the poor and denial of justice and righteousness in the province. Do not be shocked at this. He's saying corruption is rampant. Corruption is rampant. Now, what? Now, why is this uh, being said in a section that we've titled "Beware of Materialism"? Well, read on. We'll see. We'll see. Verse nine. After all, a king who cultivates the field is an advantage to the land. Well, that's an odd statement. Very cryptic. But all he's saying is, we have to have leaders. We have to have leaders. And in fact, if you know very much of the rest of the Bible at all. You know that much of the Bible, whether it's Proverbs in the Old Testament or whether it's Peter in the New Testament or Paul in the New Testament, much of the Bible makes the case that God has established leaders. And in fact, the authority and the power and the leadership that leaders uh, demonstrate and, and, and exercise really is given them by God. He's, he's actually loaning, so to speak, his authority and his leadership to them, and they're representing God. Whether they're believers or not, they're actually representing God by being leaders. So this is an interesting thing. You're probably asking, well, when's he going to start talking about money? Well, that's the next verse. Verse 10, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. What's he saying? He's saying there's no fulfillment in things. You cannot be fulfilled with the things you accumulate. That is not the source of life. That is not how you get contentment. That is not how you get fulfillment. Now you might ask, well, we went from leaders to money, and how does how do those things, two things go together? Well, I ask the same question, and I think it's very, very revealing that the writer of Ecclesiastes has associated leadership with wealth. I think that's very, very intriguing. If you look at the book of Proverbs, which could have been written by the same person who wrote uh, this book, Ecclesiastes, you'll find many instances in which 
Solomon, who, who definitely wrote Proverbs, will actually bring up the, um, the clue, the, the, the idea, the principle, that leaders do misuse their leadership. Leaders, by and large, leaders more than they should, lead in unholy, in ungodly, and in, in inconsistent and in unfair ways. So you can see that there is a connection between leadership and the overvaluing of money and, and being, being uh, all caught up in materialism. So let's continue. Verse 11, when good things increase, those who consume them increase. So what is the advantage to their owners except to look on? What's he saying? More stuff just gets consumed faster. More stuff just gets consumed faster. That's what he's saying. Verse 12, the sleep of the working man is pleasant, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. Now, don't get caught up in the idea of eating. He's only using the notion of eating as, as kind of an example. But what he's really saying, what he's really saying is having a lot of stuff doesn't let you be worry-free. You're constantly worried and you're losing sleep over all of your stuff. And as we just saw, he repeats that in verse 17. So 12 and 17 actually go together. They're sort of bookends. You can be distracted to the point with all your wealth, with all your goods, with all your accumulation, with all your stuff, that you're restless and bitter and you can't sleep. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. Verse 13. There's a grievous evil which I have seen under the sun, riches being hoarded by their owner to his hurt. Verse 14, when those riches were lost through a bad investment and he had fathered a son, then there was nothing to support him. He's saying you can't count on riches. You can't even count on enough goods to pass on to your, your children because they can be lost so easily. And this also is very much like Solomon. If you look in the in the Proverbs, again, we know for sure the Proverbs are written by Solomon. He says, I don't remember where the verse is, but he says at one point that money has the habit, particularly when you're counting on it and basing your life on it and getting all your fulfillment and contentment from it, money has a habit of sprouting wings and disappearing. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. You also see that in the New Testament where I don't remember who said it. It was either the Lord Jesus or it was Paul, I think. Could have been James, but I think it was either the Lord or Paul, who said that you can put money in your pocket and all of a sudden there's a hole in your pocket. The same idea. Money is not something you can count on. Goods and accumulation and stuff is not something you can count on. Then verse 15, As he had come naked from his mother's womb, so will he return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. And 16, And this also is a grievous evil, exactly as a man is born, thus will he die. So what is the advantage to him who toils for the wind? You see what he's saying? It's obvious. He's saying you can't take it with you. When you die, you leave it behind. So what was the point of accumulating all that stuff? You can't take it with you. All right, and then 17, throughout his life, he also eats in darkness with great vexation, sickness, and anger. Now, 17 sort of begins 
another kind of break in the flow here. And there's actually three breaks uh, or three sections in this Beware of mater Materialism uh, block. The first one I'm going to name Life is Poison When It's All About Stuff. And that's what verse 17 tells us. Great vexation, sickness, and anger. Life is, is toxic when it's all about what you accumulate. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. You know, Job said the same thing. In the first chapter of the book of Job, which is another wisdom book, which has a lot of parallels to Ecclesiastes and quite a few to Psalms and Proverbs as well. That's why they're called wisdom books. Job says in the first chapter, at the very end of the chapter, or very near the end of the chapter, first chapter, he says, the Lord has taken, no, the Lord is given, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He was saying, I know better than to hang on to stuff. I know better than to make my life all about stuff. And by the way, he was including his children in that. He was including his children. Or at least he would later, later on, include his children uh, in chapter 2. So 17, life is poison when it's all about stuff. The next section, or the next uh, break in this section, will uh, happen um, uh, in the next verse. And then there'll be a third uh, break, or third division, uh, when we get to uh, the next chapter, which is, I'm sorry, when we get to, yes, when we get to the next chapter, chapter 6. So, under the under Beware of Materialism, there's three divisions. First one, life is poison when it's about stuff. Second one is cultivate contentment. And the third division is prosperity, in chapter 6, is, is not always a good thing. Prosperity is not always a good thing. So let's jump in and continue with verse 18. Here is what I have seen to be good and fitting to eat, to drink, and enjoy oneself in all one's labor in which he has toiled under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him, for this is his reward. Now, I want to focus on that last word, reward. Um, it actually means the same thing as portion or lot. What you've been given, what you've been, what you've been uh, allotted, and that's a clue to what he's saying here. Notice in verse eighteen, he's come back to the idea of contentment, contentment, which he which he did back in chapter two, verse twenty-four, which he did again in, in chapter three, and I don't know which one this is, but there's eight times. Eight times the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes will call the reader to work on contentment. Strive to be content with what you have been given by God. And this is the second division. Again, the first division was in Beware of Materialism. The first division is verse 17, life is poison when it's all about stuff. And verses 18 and 19, we haven't read 19 yet, but verses 18 and 19 are... Cultivate contentment. Let's read 19. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward. There it is again, his reward. And rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. What's he saying? 
God gives the gift of enjoyment. God enables us to be content if we'll only, if we'll only want to be, if we'll only decide to be because of God and, and the good God that he is. So now he's talking about contentment. And this is a very interesting thing. Let's go ahead in verse 20. For he will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. He's saying the contented person will not look back wistfully. He will not look back wistfully. He'll not say, oh, the other times are better than these, or, oh, my first wife was <laughs> better than my current wife, or, you know, or, you know, I had more money, or I had a bigger house, and, oh, the good old days, you know. Contentment keeps you from doing that. That is not being content. In fact, he'll bring that up again in chapter 7. Let's go ahead and jump over there for a moment. Chapter 7, verse 10, he says, Do not say, Why is it that the former days were better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask about this. He's saying, You have no business thinking back and saying that God has not given you good things, that God is not doing right by you, that you are discontent with what God has given you. It's not right. It's not the faithful thing to do. Not at all. So now we're at chapter 6, and chapter 6 uh, brings us to the third break in this block or this section called Beware of Materialism. So let's go ahead and read, and we'll read the whole chapter. Here we go. Chapter 6, verse 1. There's an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it is prevalent among men, a man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor, so that his soul lacks nothing of all that he desires. But God has not empowered him to eat from them, for a foreigner enjoys them. This is vanity and a severe affliction. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, however many they be, but his soul is not satisfied with good things, and he does not even have a proper burial, then I say, better the miscarriage than he. For it comes in futility and goes into obscurity, and its name is covered in obscurity. It never sees the sun and never knows anything. It is better off than he. Even if the other man lives a thousand years twice and does not empower, uh, I'm sorry, does not enjoy good things, do not all go to the one place. All a man's labors for his mouth, and yet the appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage does the wise man have over the fool? What advantage does the poor man have, knowing how to walk before the living? What the eye sees is better than what the soul desires. This, too, is vanity and striving after wind. Whatever exists has already been named, and it is known what man is, for he cannot dispute with him who is stronger than he is. For there are many words which increase futility. What, then, is the advantage to a man? Or who knows what is good for a man during his lifetime, during the few years of his futile life? He will spend them like a shadow, for who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun. Now, that last verse, especially verse 12, <laughs> about the futile life, the few years of his puny little life, I mean, that's what it reads like, right? Sounds kind of negative, like, Sol like Solomon's you know, going back to chapters 1 and 2 again. No, that's not what's happening. See, we so easily misread these things if we don't take them as a whole. We have to take these blocks and understand them as as principles, as as whole principles in a block. So here we go. This is this is the division three under 
uh, watch out for materialism. Here we go. Here we go. Uh, step three or, or, or division three. What he's saying in this whole chapter, chapter six, is prosperity is not always the best thing. Let me say it again. Prosperity is not always a blessing. It is not always a good thing. And what we're assuming here as we read this is we're saying prosperity without contentment. When contentment is absent, prosperity is actually a curse. Do you see? Or at least it can be viewed as a curse. So here we go. An evil under the sun, verse 1. Verse 2, who, a man to whom God has what? Given riches and wealth and honor, so the soul lacks nothing. But he has not empowered him to eat from them. This is a man who has everything, but he doesn't realize that he has very valuable gifts, and really he's not content with them. He doesn't really understand the value of them because he's not content. He's not content, and he can't be content with the attitude of um, God hasn't done right by him. God hasn't done right. Verse 3, if a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, however many they be, but his soul is not satisfied, you see, good things, he does not even have a proper burial, then I say barely miscarriage. He's saying a miscarriage. We can actually go through verses 5 with the miscarriage thing. A miscarriage, Solomon is saying, is better off than a man who is discontent. Do you see that? Discontentment is poison. Discontentment makes you... You're better off if you'd never been born. You're better off if you were dead. Because here it is. He's basically saying, when you read verses 3 through 5, he's basically saying that a miscarriage and a discontent man are the same thing. They're equal. Isn't that amazing? Let's read 4 and 5. It never sees the sun, never knows anything. It is better off than he. Even if the other man lives a thousand years twice. That's 2,000 years. That's some hyper, hyper, hyperbole. And does not enjoy good things. Do not all go to one place. That's where he's saying it's the same deal. A dead person, or rather someone who never lived, who never was born, born live, is the same as one who's discontent. They have the same mark of no life in them. Death, if you will, but to be more accurate, the lack of life. There's no life in them. Verse 7, all a man's labors for his mouth, and yet the appetite is not satisfied. What is that? He's saying we try to be satisfied with things and with objects and with um, stuff, and we think it's just like feeding our belly. Well, you know how that works. You eat a really good meal, and you're very satisfied. You're very full. But what happens the next day? What happens the next four hours? You're hungry again. He's saying it's, it's like that with, with, with wealth. It's like that with stuff, with goods. You cannot be content with stuff. The human soul is just not that easily filled. Certainly not as easy as the belly. And even the belly isn't filled for more than a few hours at a time. Do you see? Verse 8. For what advantage does the wise man have over the fool? What advantage does the poor man have knowing how to walk before the living? He's saying it makes no difference whether you're a smart person or a dumb person 
or a successful person or a not successful person, or wealthy or poor. He says it makes no difference. If you don't have contentment, you have nothing. You don't have anything. Now look at verse 10. This is a very interesting verse. Whatever exists has already been named, and it is known what man is, for he cannot dispute with him who is stronger than he is. There's three big gems there. Three huge gems. First one. Whatever, this is verse 10, chapter 6. Whatever exists has already been named. He's saying, God has decided. God has planned. God has made the choice to give you what you have. It has been decreed. It has been decreed by God. That's what named refers to. God has named it. God has said, Fred over there, I'm going to give him this thing. That's it. That's, that's the beginning of verse 10. Named. Now, what about this? It is known what man is. Do you know what that means? It means God has planned it in a wise way. He's basically done it commensurate with the person. That's why every individual in the, in the world, in the cosmos, has something different. You know, there's a certain political group that, that seems to insist that everyone has equal outcomes, and, and, and they're trying to force that. But that's not the way God does things. God decides this person gets this much and that person gets that much. Known what man is. In other words, what's fitting for us. He has given each of us what he thinks we should have. You get that? Do you get that? And in the end, there is the end of this verse 10 really doesn't require exposition. He cannot dispute with him who is stronger than he is. Can you argue with God? Can you argue with God? That's what he's saying. And verse 11 expands on it. He says, For there are many words which increase futility. What then is the advantage to a man? He's saying complaining about it to God is not going to help. Complaining about it, which of course the, those two hypothetical objections were, were part of, he's saying complaining about it, being indignant toward God, being angry with God, disagreeing with what God has done is not going to change anything. You're not going to move God. You're not going to convince him that you need more money, that you need a bigger house, that you need a snazzier car, that you need a better wife. You know, <laughs> that's today's sort of thing, isn't it? You're not going to convince him. You're not going to convince him. Now, verse 12. For who knows what is good for a man during his lifetime? What is that? That is, do we really know what's best for us? Can we, are we really in a position to decide what God should be giving us? Are we the ones who are smart enough to know how this should work? We're not. Let me read it again. For who knows what is good for a man during his lifetime, during the few years of his futile life? We can't even, we can't even manage to live our lives in any meaningful way. And we're going to tell God how to do it? We're going to tell God what he should be doing in our lives? It's not going to happen. Not going to happen. Let's read the rest of it. He will spend them like a shadow. He's saying, what's going to come of our choices? If we were in a position, and we 
we try to be, don't we? That's just built into us. It's wired into us. We, we try to be in the position to determine our lives, to, to choreograph our lives, and to get the things we want and all that. But what's to come of those choices? In the end, do we make good choices? No, we don't. We don't. And then the last thing, who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun? He's saying at the end of the day, which is kind of the, the popular saying today, at the end of all this, we know we make bad choices. We know we do. And in fact, we only think we run our lives. We only think. Now, didn't chapter 3 make that same point? Didn't the first eight verses of chapter 3 make this very point? We go on through life thinking that we're calling all the shots, but we're not. We're not. And in Proverbs, going back to Proverbs again, in Proverbs, this is said, this point about that we don't run our own lives, this point is made over and over and over again. I'll bet that in 31 chapters of the book of Proverbs, that point is made at least 10 times, maybe 15 times. Let me read you an example. Proverbs chapter 20. Proverbs chapter 20. And I'm going to read verse 24. You ready? Proverbs 20, 24. Man's steps are ordained by the Lord. How then can man understand his way? He's saying, you know, there's other verses like, um, man makes plans, but his steps are directed by God. That's another proverb. It's saying, you know, there's nothing wrong with us you know, going through life, making decisions and all that. But James in the New Testament says something interesting. He says, don't say we're going to go here or go there and make, some, make a profit and be in business. You do not know what the day will bring. You don't know if you'll even be alive the next day. What, is, that like, is that like confrontational in your face? Not meant to be. I mean, it's not, it's not, it's not really. What James is saying there, and I don't remember what the verse is, I don't have it written down, but what he's saying there is, you need to not be misled into thinking you run your life. You don't. You don't run your own life. God lets you scurry around and, and make decisions and, and get married and have a business and, you know, all those things. But you know what? He's really calling the shots. He's really pulling the strings. And if you, you... Reader, listener, if you think that's not true, go back to chapter 3 and read those first eight verses. And how do they begin? They begin, those first eight verses of chapter 3 are a description of what God does. And it begins with being born and dying. Go read it. We read it before, but read it again. So there we are. There's, um, there's two pieces of advice from the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes. Approach God fearfully and beware of materialism. And we have eight more to go. There's ten in all. And all these are, as I say, they are the writer of Ecclesiastes, Solomon or, or whomever. Um, he's giving life advice. How to live in a way that shows you believe that God is in control and that he is, has the final say and that he controls your life and you owe him your life. Don't forget he gave his life to you in the 
form of his son, Jesus Christ, who, who let himself be defamed and unjustly treated and mocked and ridiculed and tried and executed for you. Don't forget that. And um, this is the God that, that, to whom we owe our allegiance. And although the writer of Ecclesiastes isn't going to describe the gospel in those same exact terms as, as, as I just have, he is saying the same thing. He is saying that God has done something to put himself on our radar. And he wants us to respond to that. And we respond by fearing him. And fearing doesn't mean, you know, cowering in the corner or, you know, this whole phobia thing that is the, the, the modern, you know, psychobabble that we have to deal with today. What he's saying is knowing our place. Knowing our place. Jesus said the same thing. A couple times he gave the same parable, but in a different wording, where he said, you know, when you go to a big banquet, don't don't take the the seat at the very end of the table where the where typically the leader of of a, a table setting is going to sit. Don't sit there. Don't think that you are the god of your life. Don't think that you run your life. You don't. You don't run your life. And that knowing your place, just like the place at the table in a, in a big banquet, knowing your place. Jesus said, take a lower place on the table. And if that's too low, trust that the person who's running the banquet will come to you and say, oh, come up higher in the table, closer to me. Do you see? That's humility. And that's knowing your place. And that's what fearing God means. It doesn't mean you're in abject terror, as many people would have you think. It's knowing your place. It's knowing who you are before him. And uh, that brings us to the end of our message today. Um, next time, we'll look at Solomon's third piece of advice, which will be a very interesting piece, one of my favorite pieces, uh, advice number three, and that will be expect adversity. Expect adversity. And that will be a fairly, uh, a fairly intricate uh, uh, message, so we'll probably spend most of the time um, on it next time. In the meantime, thank you for joining me in this study. I hope that it, and I pray that it is uh, meaningful to you, and that not only are you uh, drawn to this book uh, through curiosity or through, you know, interest in what it's all about, but I pray that as God's Word hits your heart, that you'll respond to it that you'll respond to it. Obey God, and talk to you next time.